Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and it is time for the Sunburnt series. Here we are. We're running out of summer, so we only have a couple left. But we're awfully glad to uh, have Dr. Matthew Barrett coming on the program in just a minute, Peter. Looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. We've covered such a nice variety of topics, it seems, this summer. And, uh, you know, anything from some of the lighter fare of... of, uh, medical conversations. So now this one will be a little bit deeper in terms of systematic theology and ethics and a number of, of um, I don't know, we'll, we'll probably get into some of the Reformation at this point. I think we will. And seeing how that we've been doing sunburnt series for the whole summer, I would say by now, both of us have a pretty nice tan. Yeah, we do. We do. <laughs> uh, independent of what, because you always say you have about a, a 2000 sunblock. Yes, on your I head. wear sunblock yeah. 2000. So it's that awkward, that, that really deep arm tan, right, with a really light head, because that's what I've got going on. Exactly, exactly. But when you look at your book of, uh, your list of books that you're reading, you know, do you have a pretty wide variety of, uh, on your reading list of books? Yeah, yeah, I actually oh, do. I try, yeah, really, I, I try to read uh, something that's meaningful. And so right now I'm reading a bit of Kenneth Bailey's uh, Jesus oh, yeah. Through the Eyes of the Middle Eastern World. You and I have both I love that uh, talked through that a bit. It's a brilliant book. But then... I'm kind of a sucker for those spy novels, you know, okay. the, the the Tom Clancy sorts of novels. I really like those. Yeah. Well, let's bring on Dr. Matthew Barrett. He's the executive editor of Credo Magazine and the host of the Credo Podcast. He's associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he's author of several books. And if you know uh, Matthew, he's been on my show a number of times. We talked about his book, Simply Trinity, The Unmanipulated Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which won the 2022 Christianity Today Book of the Year Award in Theology and Ethics. And he's also writing a systematic theology with Baker Academics. So he's a busy guy. So we're very glad he can join us today. Matthew, hi. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to uh, join you again. Yeah, really. So, Peter, do you have any good questions for Matthew yet? Well, I can or go through the prepared list that you've given me, Bill, that I do <laughs> weekly, you know. <laughs> well, you know, I, maybe one, I know, Matthew, we were just talking before the show started that one of the projects that you have in the hopper right now is a, is a new book about theology. And uh, we were just talking about maybe how theology or trying to understand God or pursuing God, how it's really changed in the last 15 years. So I don't know if you'd want to address that. Sure, yeah. You know, I, I was nervous there for a minute. I thought you were going to ask me what I thought about Tom Clancy's recent book. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, I don't keep up as much with Tom Clancy, but uh, I am a, uh, I will admit, I am a huge Stephen King fan. So, nice. uh, you know, it's similar, but not, not quite the, uh, <laughs> the intrigue with mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> the mystery. But yeah, you know, the nature, the the kind of the environment, the uh, ethos of systematic theology, it's all changed uh, quite rapidly in the last decade at least. Maybe one could even go so far to say the last two decades. I think if you go back to the 90s, really even the 80s, the 80s and the 90s, it's a strange scene because you have folks going to seminaries, uh, going to Christian colleges before that, and there really isn't 
uh, a major contemporary systematic theology textbook that's out there. And so it's an odd situation. Uh, a lot of the older books are being used uh, from you know the previous century. And so you have individuals come along like Millard Erickson and Wayne Grudem. Uh, these become the two big names that kind of break that silence and write systematic theologies. Uh, both, both have been, you know, bestsellers for a very long time. But at the turn of the century, something happened, something changed. There's all kinds of guesswork and as to why, but if I could maybe put it in a nutshell, I think uh, two things happened. I think systematic theology started to ask the question, not only, number one, are we coming to the right conclusions about major do- major doctrines of the faith, like the Trinity, but there's really an issue behind the issue, and it's this, uh, are we uh, are we actually practicing systematic theology in a way that gets us to the right conclusions? And that has become uh, an even bigger issue uh, to address, and uh, in all honesty, an uncomfortable one. I mean, right? I mean, out of us, who, who likes to actually take a hard look at themselves and say, okay, where have I gone wrong? But essentially, that's what evangelical theology has had to do in the last two decades, and uh, it it has been uncomfortable, but I think in God's providence, I think it's been for the better, because not only have we started to refine our theology and make sure it's more consistent with just Christian orthodoxy from the past, but we've also had to take a, a good look at our method to say, are we being a bit uh, too flippant with the biblical text? Are we are we uh, treating it in the way it was meant to be treated? Uh, how do we even think of theology? What's the point of it? So all these questions rose to the surface, and I think as a result, we're actually making some some wonderful progress now. Mm-hmm. Matthew, you had an article in Christianity Today, which I'd love to talk about, and it was entitled "Faithful Orthodoxy Requires Reading wi- uh, Widely." And it says, evangelicals should humbly learn from all Christian tradition, yet many are ignorant or suspicious of pre-Protestant theology. I'd love for you to say more about that. Well, it's not unrelated to the last question, because one of the big issues that's come up in systematic theology uh, is that we have not been historically minded enough. In other words, we've you know, you open textbooks from the 80s and 90s, and we're more or less coming to conclusions um, irrespective of the wisdom from the church down through the centuries. And mm. that that can be very dangerous because uh, you may not even realize it, but you could be drifting away from biblical truths. Um, I think one of the important things— I try to stress in that Christianity Today article, and and honestly, it's not at all original to me. Uh, I was so indebted to C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, in his day, this is back in the 1940s and 50s, but he, in his own day, warned against chronological snobbery, (laughs) as if, Mm. you know, I love reading books, and I love picking up all the new books, too, but Lewis said, listen, if if you're only 
if you only have a diet of new books, that puts you in a, a very vulnerable spot because you are not participating in an ancient conversation and you could be at risk for repeating some of the mistakes, maybe even certain heresies that the church has already addressed and labored hard to to clarify and and articulate in a way that's healthy and good for the church. And so Lewis is really profound at this point. He says, he gives some very practical advice, and maybe our listeners will appreciate this. He says, you know, for every new book you read, go read one, two, maybe even three old books. And I think, you know, I think this will resonate because sometimes we're intimidated, right? Even pastors and churches, you know, they might even be intimidated by the old books. But you go back and you read the classics, you know, in Athanasius or in Augustine, and what you quickly realize is, yes, okay, there's, a, you know, a different vocabulary that you have to become acquainted with. But goodness, these are classics for a reason. They are so profound, so insightful. Um, they find the biblical text so intuitive, and uh, they're also acting as a as a guardian to to keep us uh, headed in the right direction, so that we don't swerve off to the left or to the right. So that article is really, I, I saw it more as a summons, a, a call to say. Uh, if we're going to avoid chronological snobbery that C.S. Lewis warns about, then we have to practice humility. And that means uh, learning from uh, the Christian tradition, even from sometimes those we disagree with on certain issues, learning from them with humility. Interesting. Dr. Mm-hmm. Matthew Barrett is my guest. And one of the things, Matthew, that jumped off the, the article page to me was you said years ago as a Ph.D. theology student at a Protestant seminary, I was handed a list of required reading out of the 128 books, only three of them were pre-modern authors. Oh, you really put in your finger on it. <laughs> ah, I, <that's, laughs> I thought, wow, yeah, I, I'm doing yeah. this thing every other Tuesday on the show called uh, Dead Theologians, because I want to yeah. talk about past theologians that wrote the most brilliant stuff, and just to make sure that I'm reminding my listeners that there's a lot of uh, gold to mine in past authors from older books. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I think, well, as you you picked up on, I think my own experience is not unique. Um, Many will say the same thing. This is at, you know, the highest level of education, a a doctorate. And yet uh, so many of us, when we were, you know, approached a subject like theology or even history, uh, it was approached more or less uh, through contemporary thought. But um, if, you know, our listeners are familiar with, you know, the last century or two, well, it's no secret. Um, we are living on the heels of what's called modern theology. And modern theology was very intentional in betraying Christian orthodoxy at times. So uh, that means we we have to be very, very careful. Uh, this is one of the reasons why uh, I think it's just like you said. I, I mean, I really commend you, you know, taking time to learn from, you know, the dead theologians of the past. Uh, again, this is where Lewis is so insightful because he said, listen, it's not that they're infallible. You know, they make mistakes just like we do. 
but oftentimes they don't have the same blind spots as we do. And that's a big difference. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they can speak into blind spots and and kind of identify our own blind spots in a way that's very prophetic uh, and and in a way that we might never see. And uh, it's not that they didn't have blind spots, but, but they were, they were different than ours. I think one of the issues here is and this isn't just true in theology, right? I mean, this is true even in the culture that that we live in. The assumption oftentimes is whatever is newer is better. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Now, there are certainly lots of cases where that's true. You know, I I just bought a new car and I really appreciate it. Though I have some friends who might argue with that and say, you know, I've got a really classic um, (laughs) Mustang and and (laughs) it's, it's, uh, you can't beat it. But I think if we transfer that into the church or even into, say, a seminary setting, well, that can be very risky because all of a sudden uh, we privilege that which is contemporary and new as if it must be right or better, when in fact, actually, there's a reason the scriptures say uh, you need to listen to the ancient wisdom of, of those before you. This hit me. In, in my own educational experience, I can share more, but yep. I think the biggest gap in our thinking, um, we could talk about this if you want, but the biggest gap actually has to do with the Middle Ages. Okay. Let me take a break because it's that time, and we come back. Dr. Matthew Barrett is our guest. He's the Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwest Baptist Theological Seminary and host of the Credo Podcast, an award-winning author and it is the Sunbird Series. Dr. Peter Kapsner and I are so happy to have Matthew on. We'll be right back. We want to pray for you. We all need prayer. We would love to pray for you. The Faith Radio team is serious about prayer, and we pray for specific listener requests every week. Share your prayer request with us anonymously and securely on our website at MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome to the Sunburnt Series. Dr. Peter Kapsner and I are so glad to have Dr. Matthew Barrett as our guest, Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Sem and host of the Credo Podcast. So as we talk about ancient wisdom and history, I think, Peter, you got a question that you're burning to ask. I, I was just so intrigued when you were talking, Matthew, about the idea that we, we sort of just give priority to whatever's the most recent and we think we're getting smarter all along. Um, but I think we can make the case of how often we're losing sight of things and, and what we miss. And I don't know if, if you would care to comment a bit on something that might happen in theological history, like the telephone game. And when I used to play that in elementary school, you'd, you'd whisper something to somebody in one corner of the room. By the time it passes 30 people to the other corner, it sounds entirely different. And, and some of that, I yeah. think, happens in theological history. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. This is one of the reasons why I always tell um, whether it's a churchgoer or a student, I tell them, you know, it's great to read, say, a book that's about uh, John Calvin or Augustine or someone like that. But nothing nothing can compare with actually reading <laughs> a Calvin or an Augustine. And it's for that very reason, because 
so many of the debates and discussions and mistakes that we make are oftentimes, well, you can trace them back to someone who had uh, a misguided understanding of theology or maybe even history, and uh, we just kind of took their word for it. (laughs) And so it can be like the telephone game, and that just gets passed on, and and the longer, you know, the more time, the more it gets distorted. So this is one reason why I am just a huge, huge, huge um, advocate for what's called retrieval. And, you know, you asked at the beginning, you know, what has changed in systematic? I think this is one of the big things that that has changed in theology is we've had to recognize, you know, if we're going to take C.S. Lewis and his advocacy for humility seriously, we've had to say, well, maybe our theology could be renewed if we actually tried to retrieve the theology of the past. And that's been hard to swallow because that means admitting, well, maybe we have some work to do after all. (laughs) And I think the, you know, I mentioned this a minute ago, but I think the big hurdle is that also means you have to change your view of history. You can't just plummet history thinking, okay, we're the good guys, we're the bad guys, and then you just, you know, throw all the bad guys out. Uh, At the end of the day, if you take that approach to history, it's quite radical and I think, you know, there's examples of this, but I think at the end of the day, there probably will be no one left but yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so, Matt, yeah, no, I was just going to say to you, yeah, Matt, follow up it, here. yeah, just you, you talked about it can be um, a bit daunting or intimidating to read some of these uh, past theologians, and it is. I mean, I find in seminaries that they may be only reference a couple passages from these old books. It does take some discipline to maybe just sit down. They write in different kinds of English, actually, in the in the 15 and 16, 1700s, and, and maybe just to have a computer open with you if you decide to bite this kind of reading off and, and just Google some of the words as a way to start working through it. Yeah, and you know, there's been, I mean, one of the advantages of living in the 21st century is we are so blessed, right? I mean, we... We, unlike any other century I know of, we have so much at our fingertips, both in terms of books that are just coming off the press every month, and then the internet, which is amazing. I mean, we can use it for so much good in that way. I can't help but think of a a few resources. I mean, for for people out there, if they're thinking, you know what, maybe maybe I'll do it. I'll, I'll actually pick up say, Athanasius and his little book on the Incarnation, which is one of the most uh, concise but beautiful descriptions of the gospel. Well, uh, I, I say go for it. If you are, are, you know, making that a goal, sure. I mean, there's ways to uh, kind of track with the language he's using. I think one of the greatest uh, dictionaries out there is a dictionary by Richard Muller. It's just it's a it's just called a dictionary of of uh, terms, and uh, goodness, he in a paragraph explains every theological term, some of the most important theological terms you could think of, and uh, that adds a lot of clarity. I think the bigger issue though is that it's not just that we've neglected, say certain periods of history, but 
we are not really conversant with some of the most important periods of history. Uh, Just to give you two examples, you know, I think most Protestants will say, well, you know, they love the Reformation, and I do too. (laughs) But uh, we have to remember that the Reformers themselves were indebted uh, to those who came before them, and they made an argument that they were in line with so many who came before them. Well, that is a call then to say, well, who were these church fathers of, say, the the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth centuries, and why were they uh, defending the Trinity with with such boldness uh, against certain heresies? Well, that actually brings to light periods of history that we would do well to pay attention to. Hmm. Matthew, I want to read something from this article that you wrote for Christianity Today. And it said, we are unable to understand the complexity of people, movements, institutions, and entire epochs of the past, let alone learn from them. Behind this judgmentalism hides our own insecurities, agendas, and platforms. As the saying goes, people are always afraid of what they do not know. Yes, I mean, this is, I think, so apparent with, say, the Middle Ages, right? I think if you were to ask, well, not just the average churchgoer or pastor, but even um, a theologically-minded evangelical uh, who who has several degrees, they're very unfamiliar with the Middle Ages. And oftentimes, the view of the Middle Ages that comes to the surface is one, we all heard this phrase, right, the Dark Ages, Mm -hmm. which is quite scary. It, It gives the impression of total ignorance or even worse, uh, just a corruption of Christianity. And uh, this is really unfortunate. It's not that every age doesn't have maybe a, a certain uh, decline um, as, as well as success. That's true of every age. But to just view the past that way actually then cuts us off. And it gives the impression, like you just mentioned, um, it gives the impression that, oh, this is dangerous, and it tends to actually convey, well, we're actually a, a bit afraid of, of that which we don't know or that which is quite different from us. I think the Middle Ages is such a great example because people don't realize it, but here is a thousand years of church history, and if you do the math, that's half. That's half of church history that mm. we've cut ourselves off from. So, you know, if you go back to the story that I shared, um, you know, that you mentioned at the beginning, it's an odd thing, right, to go through the most advanced stages of a theological and historical education. And yeah, you might take a class on, say, the Church Fathers, but then you skip right ahead to the Reformation. You skip half of church history. Yeah. Um, that not only is going to make it difficult to understand our own identity in the Reformation— but that's also going to cut us off from some of the wisdom of of half of church history. Mm-hmm. I think you see this most with some of the fear um, and maybe scare tactics out there yeah. that you hear. Speaking of cutting off, I life. have yeah, I have to cut you off right now, only because we have to go to break. And then Peter and I will get in the huddle and figure out what we're going to do in the second half. Dr. Matthew Barrett is our guest. We will be right back. Thanks for joining me today.
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Welcome back to the show. Dr. Matthew Barrett is our guest for the Sunburnt series. Dr. Peter Kapsner and I have all kinds of questions for him, but we're going to try to move through a number of things in the next half hour because that's the nature of the Sunburnt series. We're going to be a little all over the map, and we're going to talk about the attributes of God in this half hour. But I know, Peter, before we get there, you had a great follow-up question during the break. I would love for you to ask Matthew. Yeah, just Matthew, right before you talked or you used the word fear, maybe if you could just get into that a little bit more, because I do think a lot of people understandably live in a lot of fear in life and faith and in relationships. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mentioned in my Christianity Today article that we're often afraid of what we don't know. And I think we all experience this, and maybe if we're honest with ourselves, we see some of it in in the way we act. I and mean, we, we see this with so many of the this social controversies uh, right now. But we also see it in theology, uh, oddly enough, right? And so uh, just to give one example of this, I think um, – it not only shows maybe our our ignorance, but our fear when you know someone like say Thomas Aquinas is mentioned, and here you have one of the most one of the greatest thinkers of the entire Christian faith. I would guess that most Christians have never heard of Thomas Aquinas, or if they have, and they're Protestant, it's only in a negative, very very negative way. Oh, isn't this uh, someone who's going to corrupt? Uh, you know, what we believe about the Christian faith and that sort of thing. And so this is a great example to maybe address our own fears, because, you know, Peter, you mentioned a while ago, you know, the kind of the telephone game. This is an example of that, I think, where actually, yes, you know, there are going to be some strong disagreements with this major thinker of the faith. But that doesn't mean we just throw somebody out, because oftentimes uh, we learn from the way they think. And uh, and believe it or not, there are countless ways that someone like Thomas Aquinas um, can, is so relevant for today. Um, ethics, for example, I often laugh because, you know, when we look at theology textbooks today, um, as Christians read through them, it's dealing with salvation, but there's ethics is never dealt with. But I think uh, contemporary Christians would be surprised to find out that all of these ancient theologians like Thomas Aquinas, they reserved a hefty place for ethics uh, and virtue in the Christian life right in smack dab in the middle of their very in-depth treatments of uh, theology. So this is a good way for us to maybe uh, practice some humility, put our fears aside, and, and to learn uh, from some of the great thinkers of the past. Thank you for that answer. It's wonderful. And I appreciate the perspective, especially when you talk about that we can learn from the way they think sometimes. Even if you don't agree, there's mm. there's something that I think is really valuable. You don't just discard somebody, right? Um, even in today's discourse, we're, we're learning or we're not learning how to have conversation with each other. Mm. You know, that's been one of the, the big... Uh, reveals of the 21st century is we've lost that ability. Uh, we, we no longer have conversations uh, in a way that we could talk to someone we strongly disagreement, but nonetheless, uh, st- 
still learn from uh, that dialogue and even benefit from that disagreement. We've lost that ability anymore, and it's you know, you, all you have to do is turn on you know the TV, especially around uh, election time of the year, and and that, that's very very conspicuous. And so, uh, it means retraining, uh, maybe even refining our taste buds so that we actually learn to converse with the past. That'll actually help us to talk. Uh, with Christians and non-Christians in the present in a way that uh, is much like Paul in Acts 17 as he enters the Areopagus and starts to sit down and talk to the great, the great philosophical minds of his day about the gospel. Peter, our, I know that we had talked at the break, and I, I would love, uh, Matthew, if you would maybe start talking about some of the attributes of God, I mean, classical Christian doctrine of God. Mm. Mm. And what we can learn and how can we apply it to our lives. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that uh, because in academia, uh, this has become a very fruitful conversation. Uh, I think it's become apparent that, well, yeah, we we haven't really thought hard about these. And and maybe we've been a bit uh, neglectful or even dismissive of some of the the, the attributes of God. but it's not just in academia. Uh, this is something that's so, so important for any Christian out there. Uh, when we talk about the attributes of God, um, and I explain this in my book, uh, None Greater, but uh, I, just, I, I find that for a lot of us Christians, there are attributes of God that many have never heard of before. Or if we have heard about them, we think, well, uh, that's just for the philosophers and theologians in their ivory towers. That can't possibly mean anything for the Christian faith or for my Christian life. And that's tr- that's a tragedy. <laughs> that's a real tragedy. Um, I recently had the opportunity to experiment with this, and I'm, I'm a professor, but I'm also a pastor in the local church. And uh, we said, you know what, let's do it. Let's actually take four sermons and preach uh, about four attributes that are very hard to understand, and not only do it in a way that helps people contemplate the beauty of God, but also teaches them how this then applies to the Christian life. So we could talk about some of those, but I can just say from firsthand experience (laughs) to, to people out there, you can do it. It can be done. All right, let's, I would love to take uh, maybe four of them and, and, and talk about them, if you don't mind. We have plenty yeah, of time. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, I think when we talk about the attributes of God, oftentimes what a Christian is going to think of is they're going to think about the love of God, for example, and how that plays out with God's grace and mercy. Or they they might think of, uh, for example, they might think of God's presence uh, in their life, and that all of these are are very important. However, what we sometimes forget is that there are attributes of God that are really essential just for God to be God. And um, what are some of those? Well, for example. If we're, if we're going to avoid making a God that is more or less in our own image, we have to recognize that God is infinite. 
um, and we are finite. I know that sounds so basic, but the implications are <laughs> so so many. And so if, if God is infinite, uh, he is a God who is without measure. Um, this is very different than us. Uh, we tend oftentimes to think of God in a very domesticated way, as if he's just like us, but just bigger. Um, I call this the superhero syndrome. But the Bible often warns about this uh, when Israel in the Old Testament is so tempted uh, to, go, to, to go the way of other nations and worship their gods and enter into idolatry, because these are gods that are made in their own image. But as soon as you open your Bible to Genesis 1, you discover, no, it's actually quite the opposite. We are made in God's image. So in theology, we call this the creator-creature distinction. And at the very heart of it are uh, these concepts that this is a God who is infinite, who is without measure, and he, and on that basis, he is incomprehensible. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't know anything true about God, but it does mean that we could never possibly exhaust the, the, the mystery and the depth of who this God is because he is so, so different from us. So that is one place to begin. Um, but there are many other attributes of God we could discuss as well. Um, Matthew, it, oh, go ahead, Peter. Yeah, no, just you were talking about God's incomprehensibility. And I was uh, once I had a theology professor who once said that all theology should be an act of worship, that it, mm -hmm. it is something that we're never going to get to the end of God. And so if we're using our theological pursuit to try to prove something about God or or make sure that we understand God fully the way that we'd want to understand then it's almost an idolatrous pursuit versus we're just going to go as far as the incomprehensible God will allow us to go in knowing him and, and yeah. trust uh, and surrender and the rest. So it's an act of worship, not an act of you better prove that, you know, you're true God in order for me to worship you. Yeah. You know, you make a good point. When we talk about the mystery or the incomprehensibility of God, it's not an excuse to say, well, uh, we just can't know anything. And sometimes people think that way. Uh, rather, I mean, Peter, you're exactly right when you say this should actually be fuel for our worship. You know, I can't help but think of David's words in the Psalms when David says, you know, there's one thing he desires. He's got one passion. And he, he essentially says, uh, he wants to gaze at the beauty of the Lord and to and to seek him and dwell in his temple. This is an astonishing statement because I, I think that maybe contrary to the way theology has been done, uh, you know, in, in our contemporary period, David isn't, he, he's not merely just trying to collect data. <laughs> he's not merely trying to say, I just want to, to have more information about God. I think David recognizes, you know, very much like Moses approaching that, that bush that was on fire, he recognizes this is, this is a holy God, which means he's not just righteous and without sin, but he is set apart. He is altogether other. He's not just a bigger, better version of myself. He is altogether different than me. And uh, this then drives David to worship, to say, well, if God is this incomprehensible, holy God, um, well, then, then this is a God I do want to worship. 
as opposed to a God who's more or less like me, well, that may be a God we're familiar with, but that's not a God that we we will, at at the end of the day, ultimately pray to and bow down to. So good. Dr. Matthew Barrett is our guest, and growing up, he got a Dairy Queen for every A he got, and he went to the Dairy Queen 721 times, which uh, I never went once, but that's okay. I, I'm just not, I'm not feeling that upset about it, but we are going to take a little break, and if uh, you have any question or comment about anything you've heard, you can send it over to me via text. We can ask uh, Matthew, 877-933-2484. I love talking about the attributes of God. That's what we're talking about. We just talked about God's incomprehensibility and his awesomeness. I never get tired of that. We come back, we're going to cover some more of God's attributes. You're listening to the Sunburnt Series. Dr. Peter Kapsner and I, again, are so glad to have Dr. Matthew Barrett as our guest. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. sunny day here in the Twin Cities of Minneapolis slash St. Paul, and we have, are enjoying some sunshine outside, and it is the Sunburnt Series that Dr. Peter Kapsner and I love doing throughout the summer. Our guest is Dr. Matthew Barrett, and we've been talking about a number of things today, so if you've missed any of this, there's all kinds of things on the hors d'oeuvre tray you're going to go check out at MyFaithRadio.com. So, uh, Matthew, I'd love to continue talking about the attributes of God. My Rosie, the producer, said, I don't know if people really know the attributes, because if you knew them, you would love him more, trust him more. And we don't talk about this very much. You're exactly right. Um, I might step on some toes here, but but I think it's maybe necessary, because oftentimes as Christians, we think of God as a means to some other end, right? And no one wants to admit they're doing this, but it's very common. Uh, the way we go about uh, church, for example, or the way we just go about our prayer life, or the way we just start thinking about God, it's as if we go to God in order to get to something else, something mm. better. But actually, that's the exact opposite <laughs> of the way that uh, Christianity is designed. Um, God isn't uh, something less than something greater. He's the perfect being. Uh, in John, the Gospel of John's language, he is eternal life itself. He's the fullness of life. Now, if that's the case, well, yes, there are many good gifts that God gives us in this world, but those are a means to the ultimate end, which is knowing this great God. And you think of Jesus's words in John, John 17, when Jesus says, uh, what is eternal life? It is to know God. And so if that's the case, then I think we have to reverse our thinking as Christians. We have to realize, well, if I want to find uh, the greatest happiness and, and fulfillment, um, it's, God isn't a means to that. No, it's found actually in Him. I think this is one of the reasons why so many Christians just find the idea of heaven so 
repulsive uh, because the idea of uh, just being in the presence of God, well, that, that sounds boring at best or maybe just disastrous at worst. But actually, if we change our mindset to, say, David in the Psalms, and we, just like we mentioned before the break, David thinks, if only, if only I could be in the presence of God, then I will enjoy and see his beauty, and that will, will be uh, so satisfying and for all eternity. That is where my happiness will be rooted. I think that there are certain attributes, though, that hold up that proper understanding of the Christian life. If we could just take one of them, it would be an attribute called aseity, which I know is a word that we don't use much of today. Um, it comes from the Latin and the, the language of ase. It is simply, um, actually, it's, it's actually quite simple to understand. It means that God doesn't go to someone or something else for his life, for his happiness, for his fulfillment and sustenance. Uh, it actually means God is life in and of himself, which that is true of him alone. Uh, we are quite dependent creatures, very needy creatures. But I love to say to people, you realize you do not worship a needy God. <laughs> uh, this is a God who is life in and of himself, and therefore he's not just self-existent, but he's self-sufficient. And for that reason, you think of John, uh, Jesus and how he approaches the woman at the well in John 4. Jesus can actually say to her, I can offer you life uh, or, or water, so to speak, water, so that you are never thirsty again. Well, if that doesn't have implications for salvation in the Christian life, goodness, I don't know what does. Hey, Matthew, you were uh, just talking about we sometimes go to God to get something better. Uh, is it possible that we almost treat prayer like an idolatrous kind of thing? I mean, we go to idols to try to get something out of them. If, if we give them something, is it possible that we sometimes treat prayer in that way as well? Oh, you know, prayer is, I think, that moment where our real theology comes out in its brightest colors. And mm. sometimes uh, it is a bit humiliating. And, and I'm not preaching at others here. I'm actually preaching to myself because uh, prayer is something I, we, we all struggle with. But yes, you're exactly right. I think I catch myself coming to God in prayer and I'm very quick to just get on to what I want God to do for me, right? Now, God certainly does invite us to come to him and to, to cast our burdens before him and to ask of him. I mean, he is such a, a, a heavenly father in that sense and, and so patient with us. But there is a danger there. There is even an idolatry that kind of lurks in the background of our prayers if we're not careful because ultimately, uh, I think our prayer lives would change if we recognized, okay, I'm not going to God like some type of Santa Claus. Uh, I'm actually going to him because I want to know him, and he has revealed himself to me uh, not just as creator but as my savior. And if that's the case, well, then that actually opens our eyes to ask a bigger question, right? Who is this God? And why, is, why, if he is so infinite, um, well, goodness, what, what is there for me to know about this God? That actually changes things altogether, because then when we bump up 
against an attribute like God's unchanging nature, what we call immutability. Well, all of a sudden, you think of the book of James, right? James can say to to Christians who are in the midst of trials and suffering, he can say to them, don't lose heart, don't give up, go to God in prayer. Why? Because you know how great this God is in the midst of your changing world and all of its chaos. You can count on this God. He does not change. And that, I think, is a basis of great hope in the Christian life. Dr. Matthew Barrett is our guest. Uh, Matthew, I, I really did like this line you said, we go often to God to get something better. So maybe just to add some balance to that discussion, he also says, come to me with all your needs. And we all have a plate, a load of needs that we come to him with every day. Yes, absolutely. Right. And this is this is what uh, is so astonishing, is that here's this God who does not need anything, right? It's not as if we come to him and we are like somehow adding something that he otherwise is otherwise lacks and as if he's insufficient. So it's not as if he needs anything. And yet he invites us in. He gives us the privilege of coming to him uh, and, and, and then casting our needs upon him. And scripture tells us that if we are children of God, then regardless of our circumstances, we can trust in his good will for us. Um, this is, you know, I think so explicit in the story of Joseph. You know, Joseph is spending years in prison. He doesn't know what's ahead. It could be death. And yet the text tells us again and again, the God who does not change was with Joseph, and he was working out his good plan of salvation, ultimately, not just for Joseph, but for the people of Israel, uh, so that his saving promises would one day come true in Christ. Matthew, we just have about five minutes left. I'd, I'd love for you to talk about God's impassibility. What does that mean, and, and how do we understand that? Well, impassibility is a word that's probably very foreign to people today, but If you understand God's immutability, when Scripture says God does not change, well, really, you're just a step away. Because when we talk about the fact that God does not change, we mean that in every way. Uh, It's not as if there's some exception to that rule. Um, And one of the ways is, well, God is not vulnerable like us. Uh, He is not uh, in flux. He's not changing emotionally from one state to another. Uh, this was the issue with the gods of other nations around Israel, right? They could be manipulated because maybe I can offer enough sacrifices and get them to change their mind. And so they're not angry with me. And now I can, I can kind of manipulate them. So they're happy with me. Uh, Saul, King Saul, this is his downfall. You think of 1 Samuel 15, he doesn't obey God, and he doesn't, put the, he doesn't uh, do away with the spoils of war, and God calls him on it. And what does he do? He, well, when the prophet Samuel confronts him, he thinks, oh, I could still get out of this. I can maybe manipulate God emotionally. And Samuel basically says to him, who do you think God is? He's not a man. He doesn't change his mind. And it's tragic. He says, God has taken the kingdom from you. He's given it to David. 
So this is a reminder to us, right? I mean, we are people of passions, right? Uh, we're watching a, a basketball game in one minute. We're jumping up and down. They're going to win. And then the next minute they li- miss the shot and we're distraught and we can't believe it. And we're crying. <laughs> we're all over the place. But that's not the case with God. And this is one of the reasons why he is so incredibly trustworthy. We just have a minute left, but I want to follow up with, we often hear regarding tragedy, oh, this has broken God's heart. Yeah. When you hear that, what do you think, Matthew? You know, it's very common to hear, and sometimes it even goes more radical than that. Uh, someone will say, maybe they've seen someone who's going through a terrible time, and they'll say, maybe out of not knowing what to say, right? <laughs> We've all been there. They'll say something like, um, oh, don't worry, God was just as surprised by this as you were, or uh, don't worry, God's suffering just as is your suffering. He's just as overcome as you are. And I realize, you know, in the moment, the person's probably saying that more out of a, a desperation and, and awkwardness, right, mm-hmm. to try to comfort that other person. And, and we all want to comfort them. But if we actually take a step back and think about it, it's not very comforting in the end yeah. because God then – suffers like we do and needs just as much saving as we do. Interesting. Mm. So we have to Mm. avoid, uh, we have to avoid domesticating God and and making him, putting him in our box as if he's just as vulnerable to tragedy like we are. Ultimately, if that's the case, well, we don't really have an answer to evil and tragedy Mm -hmm. in the world. Matthew, loved having you on. Thank you so much for saying yes to our invitation. It's been a delight. Thanks for having me. Uh, appreciate all you guys are doing. You bet. Appreciate you very much. Peter, that's been a great hour. Thank you as well. Yeah, he was good. That was uh, something to listen back to again a couple of times. Yeah, that's amen. for sure. That's our show for tonight. Dr. Matthew Barrett has been our guest. Have a great night, everyone. I can't wait for our time tomorrow, and I'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.